I mean, what's what's your assessment of how the Biden administration has uh, dealt with the trade issue as as time has gone on? Yeah, so we were hopeful that there would be some real significant effort on building our industry, building our jobs uh, here. I think last week really revealed uh, because Biden uh, did a declaration invoking a national emergency, mm-hmm. saying that there's a national emergency uh, on the climate. So we have to get subsidized uh, forced labor, uh, dirty energy, solar panels made by Chinese companies from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. I, so it's build back Beijing <laughs> is what it is. It really is. I was hesitant to say that two months ago. I'm not. It is Build Back Beijing. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week it's just me again, and we've got a fantastic episode for you today. Look, American Moment focuses on a whole variety of issues from everything from immigration to foreign policy to innovation to law and order and family. But but one of the ones that we care the most about that we feel like represented the core of uh, the agenda that President Trump ran and won on in 2015 and 16 is trade. And today we had on uh, the a CEO of our favorite group working on trade in all of Washington, and that is Michael Stumo, the CEO of the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Uh, Michael has been a friend of American Moments for a while. We've had uh, various staff at uh, CPA teach at American Moments programming, and we're really excited to finally bring you this conversation uh, where we dive deep for an hour on all of the issues that matter on the trade issue, whether it was China, national security, WTO, NAFTA, um, uh, what the reform today could look like, what Trump did right on the issue, what Biden's doing wrong. You're going to walk away from this episode with a foundational understanding of the trade issue. It's going to be great. Listen through to the end. And more so than ever, I'll encourage you guys, if you're a staffer on Capitol Hill looking to move your boss in this direction, or you work for a member that is already open-minded on trade and wants to make things in this country like any normal country does, um, talk to Coalition for a Prosperous America. They are a underutilized asset. And I know that not because they don't have a big presence in DC, but because every office isn't calling them every single day to ask them every question. They are. They have economists on staff. They have their GR team. They they know what needs to be done on this issue. I can't emphasize enough um, how awesome they are and how useful they've been for us as we're just looking to you know be the young ideologues in the room who think that we should make things in this country actually put meat to the bones on what an America first trade um, policy looks like. So uh, just to give you a little bit about Michael's bio, he's the chief executive officer of the Coalition for Prosperous America, which is a bipartisan uh, national organization, including agriculture, manufacturing, and organized labor. Um, they work for U.S. policies to balance trade, create jobs, and achieve broadly shared prosperity. Uh, CPA represents the interests of over 4.1 million households through its association and company members. Before he uh, started the Coalition for Prosperous America in 2006, Michael was a lawyer and litigator uh, at Brignall. Bush and Lewis in Hartford, Connecticut, and Domina Law in Omaha, Nebraska. He was general counsel for the Organization for Competitive Markets focused on upon agriculture and antitrust. He holds a BS from Iowa State University in Agriculture and a law degree from the University of Iowa. He lives on a farm in southwest Massachusetts with his wife, Nadia, where they raised three children. He's a friend. This episode's a treat, and we'll go now to Michael Stumo. Howdy, Michael. Thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Happy to work with you. Um, We always like to hear about how our guests got where they are today. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up leading Coalition for a Prosperous America and and what brought you to to this issue, to this industry, to this job. Sure. I grew up on a farm in Iowa raising uh, pigs, cattle, corn, soybeans, hay, oats. And uh, actually, um, that was my Way of making money that put my pigs put me through college. My dad contributed. <laughs> he paid for my college by giving me corn, and giving me a few pigs to start out with, and some I got. And uh, but I was very interested then in uh, preserving the family farm and getting a price. Uh, we were very focused on the fact that the middlemen would keep pushing the price down, and they would keep marking up the margins. So a four dollar, you know. Be- 
box of cornflakes had a nickel of corn in it and, you know, and the cornflakes went up, but the corn price never did at the time mm-hmm. sufficiently. And uh, I did, I was actually, after getting an agricultural degree in college, Iowa State University, I did, I was a hog buyer for a group called the National Farmers Organization and trying to push up farm prices by selling collectively, actually, and then uh, decided that this wasn't really working out for me. Went to law school, got married, had kids, and being a lawyer, but still wanted to, you know, help on agriculture and uh, was asked to be in a part of a group called the Organization for Competitive Markets, which was all about antitrust in the food processing sector with the Cargills, the ADMs, the the, the Tysons, um, and fighting uh, 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 concentration monopolies that were pushing down family agriculture and the rise of uh, of, uh, of 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 large scale corporate agriculture, which was very hard on local communities, because if you go to flyover country, it's hard to put an auto plant in every town, but they have land, and the the, the agricultural production sucks in a lot of money, and it keeps the local lumber yards going, and the local hardware stores, and local you know chemical dealers, and the local what uh, you know chemical in terms of agricultural uh, going. But in the mid-2000s, we looked around and said, you know what, this trade thing isn't working out for us like they all said it would, uh, where we would have, uh, uh, we were promised all this global market share and, and market access globally. And that wasn't turning out, uh, especially since we were giving up market access, uh, real market sales and market share in our own economy, which is the richest, biggest economy in the world. This math that they promised, it isn't working out. And then we thought, well, this this trade issue is bigger than we can handle from the agriculture side. So we were looking for friends. And in 2006, we set up a uh, a conference uh, and asked all kinds of just a Star Wars bar scene of different people that <laughs> from uh, manufacturing to labor to church groups to environmental to hum- animal rights, everything is. And as it turned out, agriculture and manufacturing and labor, we all said, well, we're all getting declines in domestic market share. And we're not getting, you know, from the worker side, from the industry side, and we're not making it up. Uh, elsewhere and of course this is post nafta this 2006 uh and and uh we started coalition for a prosperous america and today we're the largest uh we're the only national domestic producer organization that there is all other manufacturing and and agriculture associations are uh don't care about this market so much they're funded by those that are multinational they're global they don't want to talk about trade they want to I mean, they don't want to talk about building domestic here. They want to talk about, you know, lowering tariffs and, you know, pulling in more cheap stuff from overseas. So we're unique in building uh, this organization. And uh, so that's how we came to be. 2006 is a very different world than uh, today. Paint a picture for me. What's the what's the policy landscape, the trading landscape, the state of the economy at that point in time, um, left, right? in different industries? What, what was the scene that you guys were coming out of? Sure, China had just become, a few years prior, uh, joined the WTO, which of course was a tremendous mistake. And uh, they were debating the uh, Bush, uh, Bush two was in, W, and he was a free trader. Of course, Clinton was a free trader, globalist. And uh, they were pushing the South, uh, South Korea Free Trade Agreement at the time. Uh, we were a brand new organization and, you know, uh, wanting uh, balanced trade. So I actually, um, it irritates me when people talk pro or anti-trade. <laughs> um, you're going to trade. You just want to have relative balance. You want to have a, a, a import some and export some. That's in balance. And that's, then you don't. When you have an imbalance, you're gushing wealth out your door. Now, I've, I've been told by all sorts of fancy economists in this town that caring about your trade deficit is a conspiracy theory, but you're saying no, that that actually matters. Why does it matter? It matters because, A, in a direct sense, just like we saw in the first quarter GDP, we had a shrinkage of GDP because we had a trade deficit, and mm-hmm. that mathematically makes your economy uh, smaller because you, you can... 
you import what you consume. You're not value adding those things that you consume. So you excess you excessively relying on imports. You're not you're not getting the value add, the labor, the investment, the R and D, uh, the 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 profit margins from those goods. You're just buying them and consuming them. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, number two, the you need to have a sufficient proportion of your economy in manufacturing. Uh, we're we're down to about ten percent. Germany's probably around twenty to twenty three. China, Korea, maybe 30. I'm off on those numbers, but it's pretty close. The thing is, to have a high-wage society, which I would say is the holy grail, is a high-wage society broadly shared, you need to have consistent, you have to have people employed in sectors that have consistent productivity increases. The only way that happens is in manufacturing. Uh, you can go from knitting a sweater a day to to knitting a thousand sweaters a day, let's say, with uh, you know with the automation in the factories. And that's not a negative on work. We've had automation for centuries, mm-hmm. and it always ends up being uh, positive and not a negative on on uh, on employment because it switches to other sectors, which I don't mean to be blase about that. The point is, Restaurant workers, it's hard to go from one to 1,000 serving in an hour or in mm-hmm. a shift. Uh, tax accountants, so that's about the same. So you need those productivity increases to justify the wage increases. And those, so the, the manufacturing drives wages. Of course, it drives you know other things, the innovation, the things you need for national security, uh, that sort of thing. And then they push up the wages of the other sectors that don't drive. They pull them along. So when you have manufacturing shut down and dump those workers onto the service sector, regional and national wages go down. So it's really important for a lot of reasons, including a high wage society, which is why we should go from a ten percent to a twenty percent. I think. Uh, goal of manufacturing as a share of our economy. And it certainly used to be that way, right? I mean, when when did American manufacturing really start declining in a precipitous sense? I think a tipping point was the free-floating currency of, uh, of Nixon's getting off the gold standard, but we didn't really detect it then. Mm. Uh, and then in the uh, the 80s, it ramped up more. Reagan felt pressure uh, justifiably for the increasing trade deficit, which was the biggest ever at the time. And Max Baucus was actually a leader of pushing against Reagan, a Democrat from Montana who later became a, a free trade globalist that didn't care about that stuff. But so Reagan got pressured, uh, rightly so, and they responded well. Him and James Baker did the Plaza Accord in 1985, which at the time, currency imbalances, exchange rate imbalances were driving it. The dollar was way too high, making all our goods, services, and labor too expensive, uh, uh, globally uncompetitive. The dollar was overvalued. Uh, the yen, that was the era of Japan, Inc. <laughs> Japan was the China of the time. Yeah. You look back and think, how could that island be ch- challenging us for global economic supremacy? But they were. We were all worried. And uh, they Why were, were they? They were undervalued. It was an undervalued currency with an industrial strategy designed to build their national champion industries. Uh, and then, but so they cared more than we did, basically. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't have you know fetishes about trying really hard to work with industry to win the global competition for good jobs and in industries. Mm-hmm. We do. We think that we just need a level playing field. We need to be the um, the government needs to be the umpire for fair markets and let it happen. And that's a nice utopian vision, but the thing is the rest of the world doesn't play that way. They have a plan. They have an intent to win uh, for their economy and for their country. So Reagan convinced the Germans, the Brits, the West Germans at the time, the Brits, the Frank, the France, or the French Frank, who were all undervalued. He and James Baker got them in a room in the Plaza Hotel in New York City and convinced them to realign their currencies so they, they would up the value of theirs. We would decrease, you'd realign to something that got closer to balancing trade because exchange rates drive trade imbalances very significantly. Mm-hmm. Most people don't get that, mm-hmm. which is a huge part of our collective insanity on trade. <laughs> um, but he did. And by 1990, we had balanced trade. Um, he was a tariff cutter. So Reagan wasn't perfect on trade in my view. Yeah. Um, but uh, then in the 90s with NAFTA, then the, the, the you know, the the giant sucking sound predicted by Ross Perot and, you know, the 92 election uh, came true. A lot went to 
Mexico, but then China devalued by 40% when NAFTA came into effect in 1994, and that took a low way. Mexico devalued, they had a peso crisis. China devalued intentionally, and that really was the start in 1994 of, uh, of pulling industry out of the U.S., and then, of course, China got in the WTO later. But uh, I think yeah. the tie between currency and trade is is really important here. I want you to say more about what exactly that process is. Uh, off the top of my head, it seems like if other countries' currency is undervalued compared to yours, it incentivizes dollars to not stay in the United States. They get put in foreign direct investment building infrastructure in those other countries where they can manufacture goods more cheaply. Is that right? What am I missing? Yeah, it's actually, uh, sorry, it's not quite right. There you go. Well, um, tell me. I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. So first off, the the economic whiteboard ideal is that in a free-floating currency world, not pegged to a, a gold, you know, a shiny rock called gold or, or, or something else, um, you will not, you cannot have trade imbalances that persist because exchange rates will adjust in this way. Uh, you're, if you are, a, if you are a, a huge exporter in relation to your imports, your economy will grow, your employment will grow, and it will make your currency stronger, which will make your goods too expensive, and you'll sort of settle back down towards balance. If you are uh, importing too much, your employment is suffering your industrial growth and investment is suffering. Your currency will go too low. Uh, well, it'll be, it will go low. It will make all your goods and services and labor more attractive globally. You'll export more and always be trending toward balance. So mm -hmm. uh, either way, the fact is uh, that doesn't happen. So stipulated in that is the ideal is always trending your exchange rate toward a balance of trade, which is your industrial production, because trade is primarily goods. The services trade is intra-company transfers, it's IP, it's, you know, your your payments to your insurance subsidiary and the Caymans, <laughs> it's all that sort of stuff. It's just yeah. a big, you know, dumpster fire, frankly, the services trade. And so, you want to have the exchange rates that are a way to balance uh, trade so no one country like China excessively relies on the U.S. market for their um, employment and growth. And, and they're exporting their under and unemployment to mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. and we're absorbing it by, you know, by doing financial shenanigans. It doesn't balance now because global capital is detached from economies now, and mm -hmm. don't don't confuse, please, global capital flows with investment. It's not the same thing. Uh, investment investment in plant and equipment is really cool. It's less than 1% of global capital flows. It's maybe one one-hundredth of 1% of it because they're so massive. So the global fat cash, the Davos man moving money around to arbitrage interest rates or arbitrage opportunities and buying paper here or there or finding a safe haven, they're driving currencies awry in relation to their economic, uh, 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 the underlying e economics. And so with the dollar, we, we have more dollar-denominated assets to sell than anyone else. When you have a Ukraine, Ukraine war or COVID or when you have Wall Street just selling these assets all the time, we actually uh, get a huge flow of capital into the U.S., driving up our dollar too high. It doesn't benefit us because it's just they're selling paper, paper stuff or T-bonds or something like that. And uh, But all our real economy becomes non-competitive in relation to the world. So uh, we're seeing it right now. The dollar is, you know, we have inflation, but the, the Fed raises interest rates. Everybody chases the interest rate. Everyone's chasing our stock markets, and and we just had the biggest trade deficit month in March that we've ever had in history. Wow. Um, walk me through uh, what industries were most um, affected uh, by NAFTA specifically, um, because it's funny, the, the idea that a North American free trade agreement would send some of our capacity to Canada or Mexico I mean, that seems quaint by comparison to what's happened with China. Um, but 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 walk us through that that two step process. What went, what 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 did Canada and Mexico get out of NAFTA, and then what what did China do after? Sure. So um, 
Mexico was actually doing quite well when they were negotiating. It was sort of Mexico was coming out of its third world, poor country, emerging market status. Uh, and then NAFTA happened and it didn't because they had a lot of internal turmoil. But um, the whole theory, look, the, the whole neoliberal theory is that if you simply focus on uh, cheap consumption from domestic, wherever, doesn't matter where, cheap consumption will make you rich. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a real fault line between where I and presumably you approach things in that you want, and it's a sort of the Hamiltonian view, is you build production, you build productive capacity to uh, uh, you know, generate wages, investment, and build your industrial base. Everything else follows from that. The neoliberals say the ne that cheap consumption, everything follows from it. So NAFTA was all about dropping tariffs. And that we, we had, you know, shoot, we had three years it was about dropping tariffs, producing wherever is the cheapest in the North American region. Uh, and it's good for the consumer. And we'll all be richer. They'll get more efficiencies. We'll all be richer because whoever does, you know, whoever makes stuff the best will make stuff the best, mm -hmm. uh, the cheapest. Uh, we also had, remember, we had come out of 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell. It was the end of history. There was this whole view of a, you know, global government, global, you know, one world. And that was part of it. They wanted to expand NAFTA on a sovereignty basis. So you really lessen the power of national governments to control their economy because they'll just mess it up. Um, so we got to go global. And of course, then later with the 1995 WTO agreement, we transferred our trade policy to Geneva. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's what drove it. Uh, cheap consumption is the rule and we get efficiencies and that's good. It says nothing about building new efficiency, says nothing about building new industries. It's a stagnant view of this is where you are now. Let's be more efficient at it. And if we make cotton and corn, we'll get more efficient. But Productive, you know, the Hamiltonian view is you're always building the next industry of the future and it, you're investing in and it doesn't always make sense like now because you can get it from somewhere else, but you're getting those industries of the future. Mm -hmm. But then when NAFTA happened, they had, shoot, you had the Mayan rebels come out of the Yucatan. Uh, they had assassinated a, a presidential candidate, uh, Subcommander sub Marcos sent a letter to the next ones, you know, saying, welcome to hell. <laughs> uh, and they had the right, they had, they didn't like the NAFTA that displaced millions of uh, actually Mexican farmers because they were competing with Cargill and ADM. Mm -hmm. uh, but the U.S. farmer didn't get a benefit from mm -hmm. it. They did, the multinationals. And Mexican peso, they had the peso crisis, crisis the Mexican peso crashed by a lot, I don't know how much, and all of a sudden, boom, it was not only a low tariff, which we already had low tariffs, but all of a sudden the Mexican products became 25, 30, 40% less expensive because of the peso. Mm -hmm. And so you wonder what in industries, it's automotive assembly, automotive parts, uh, electronics, anything that goes into electronic parts components, those are the big ones that move there. Um, and those are good industries. We'd like to have them, number one. Number two, Mexico oddly didn't benefit because they flatlined real wages for the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. They're the lowest among all OECD countries. Uh, but they didn't get a benefit out of it in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th that that I find to be a, a, a very interesting concept is how free trade in certain circumstances can be mutually destructive, not just you know, one country benefiting. I mean, the China-U.S. relationship, China clearly benefited, the U.S. clearly lost. Um, but in the case of the relationship between a country like the United States and, and Mexico, where it was a developing country about to establish its own robust industrial base, how it how it caused um, serious damage, I find that fascinating. What happened with, with Canada? Well, Canada wasn't quite as stark. Canada is more of a commodity economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did get a lot of automotive manufacturing, did move up the scale. But uh, to your point, um, there is no evidence. I, you know, I was, well, if you read it, there's conflicting evidence. We think trade liberalization is, uh, has, has, has been destructive on net. It's been destructive to the major economies uh, and the African economies, and we've been trying to do liberalization with Africa and least developed countries with our 
generalized system of preferences, which since the mid 19, since the early 70s, we gave zero tariff treatment to, to poor economies, over 100 of them. They give them access to the US market and they can get rich, trade not aid. It just mm -hmm. didn't happen. It just didn't work. Why didn't it work? Well, it's hard. My, I think it's because um, A, any access to our rich consumers was only a benefit to their plantation mentality, local oligarchs that, you know, had poor labor and they didn't share the, you know, it didn't drive up wages. Mm. The, you really have to do uh, economic and industrial development that's appropriate for your own economy at the stage that it is. Mm -hmm. And... Um, whether it's uh, you know the African countries or whatever to, to, to leapfrog in that sense, that's what China, Korea, and Japan and Taiwan and Singapore did. They mm -hmm. had they they devalued their currencies, had a very intentional development in in their uh, way, and they were able to access our markets. If you don't have that, uh, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And we need that's actually we need to, as a developed economy, to be very intentional in our continued development. Otherwise, we get eclipsed mm -hmm. by, you know, uh, the others mm -hmm. with exchange rates, industrial strategy, tariffs, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So it didn't work. And uh, for Mexico, they, it's a quasi-failed state. I was there three times in the last year. It's really great to be there. I love the people. They'll say, we're so corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> and the gangs... Uh, uh, the drugs, the, the state of Nayarit, which I was in, you know, the people there said, this is the most corrupt state in the whole country. Well, I don't know. I'll take your word for it. It looks like it, you know, to me. But unless you have a f decent functioning government mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, have all the elements of building a political economy, you kind of got to do it from within. You can't just do a trade deal and fix it. And yeah. that's been demonstrated. Yeah, um, that's that's super helpful. Um Talk to me about China. What was China's industrial strategy through the 80s and 90s, and how did the free lunch that America left on the table interface into that? Was it was it the whole game, or, or were they doing something much more global than that? Well, China's really big. Yeah. Uh, and whenever they make a decision, it's just multiples of what we do, just mm -hmm. because they're so big in terms of population. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, where to start the story. I think the starting the story, as I alluded to before, is in 94, which was NAFTA implementation. Uh, China devalued by 35 or 40 percent mm -hmm. their renminbi. And a lot of the benefit Mexico thought they were going to get went to China uh, as far as sucking industry out of the U.S. They, mm -hmm. they did get a lot of maquiladora, a lot of industrial activity, but a lot of it went to China. And they have their five-year plan. So I look at it as if you are just a totally take-no-prisoners nationalistic economic development strategy, you've, you first need to have a fairly or preferably way undervalued currency. Mm -hmm. And then your industrial strategy is very hard to go wrong. Mm -hmm. um, if you have overvalued and do under overvalued currency – with an industrial strategy, it's very hard to get it right. <laughs> but they had a combination. So the South Koreans went from a war-torn, poor post-war country in the 1950s to a first world country with undervalued yuan and industrial strategy with a Chaibol sort of government industry partnership with, uh, you know, with Hyundai, Samsung, LG. Japan did the same, built from a, you know, totally defeated country of World War II to rebuilding and uh, their Keiretsu strategy, which is uh, with Panasonic, Mitsubishi, Toyota, Honda, uh, those industrial giants uh, with that, that were intent on getting technology and developing and employing you know, their citizens. China did the, follow the script. The IMF actually encouraged countries to undervalue their currency. And uh, so they did that. And then they had their five-year plans. And like I say, you can mess it up. They happen to not mess it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they're not looking for a level playing field. They're not looking for fair play. They're looking to win. Mm -hmm. And uh, they did so with an export-oriented strategy that I just mentioned to rely on the U.S. consumer market to power their growth. Mm -hmm. 
1995 happened, the WTO, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which was agreed to in the late 40s, matured into the WTO, not just a mere trade treaty, but the WTO, which had governance. So we transferred our governance to Geneva. Then China was going to enter and did enter in 1999-2000. Clinton pushed it. Bush was all on board for it. Both their trade representatives were, yeah, 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 let's get rid of tariffs and uh, everybody will get rich. And so the combination of China's state capitalism in the industrial strategy and an amount of subsidies to these industries, uh, the volume of which just blows your mind. Mm -hmm. Western economists have been saying since the 90s and the 2000s, there's no way they can keep this up. Mm -hmm. They'll get crushed by debt. They can't keep it up. Well, they're still going. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's it. Undervaluation plus an industrial strategy and subsidies. And frankly, in our country, as we're thinking of the three steps of industrial strategy, mm -hmm. and it varies over industries, depending if it's established or you want it new, mm -hmm. uh, but you've got to have financing to get them going, number one. Number two, an immediate customer base of sufficient volume to get to scale because scale gives you the cheap per unit goods. Mm -hmm. And lastly, uh, production from foreign predation. That's the three steps for us. Yeah. So walk me through then. What would getting back to a sensible trade policy in the United States look like? Um We've lost so much capacity, and 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 the the biggest lesson that I've learned as I've started to look into this is how frustrating it is when you give up something you already have because the hardest thing is is creation, all that initial investment, the financing, the labor uh, pool, the talent. Um, once you give that up, it's it's just a lot harder to bring it back. Um, you know, you can scale an amount up, down a little bit, but but we've entirely outsourced entire industries. Um, what are the the concrete smaller steps that it would start to look like to start to restore a sane trading policy in the United States? I'll make a comment on exchange rates here first, and uh, and then I'll go into what's actually possible right now because yeah. um, our our Fed and our Treasury are in free floating uh, sorry a free flow of capital world, which is like free trade mm -hmm. um, instead of regulating the capital flows in the public interest, the national interest. But the dollar is about 15% overvalued right now. The, the, the renminbi of China is about 15 to 20% undervalued and the yen and the euro are about 25 to 30% undervalued in relation to a trade balancing exchange rate. So that's, you know, combination is like 40 to 50% out of the money that we are. Uh, we're, you know, makes imports cheap and exports expensive. So uh, assuming as we do that there's no will to include exchange rate and capital flow management in our monetary policy, which Yellen's against, Powell's not there, and Wall Street would freak out because what they sell is dollar-denominated You're assets. not getting another one of those agreements in the, what was it? The a plaza accord. Plaza, you know, we could do a accord. plaza too, but we don't have military client states to negotiate with anymore. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, so- uh, probably now, number one is don't lower the tariffs, which are the trade protection for the industries we have, mm -hmm. which is what Biden did last week for solar uh, and what we, we see news reports today that he wants to do with the 301s, which is the Trump tariffs, the 301 tariffs against China that were thrown on because of uh, intellectual property theft. Mm -hmm. What are the industries where, where we are most protected, where the policy has been good in your view? Well, national security industries, mostly you can't offshore, mm -hmm. uh, nat critical national defense, although we've done some of it there. Um, steel industry has done a pretty good job protecting itself. It's mm -hmm. a critical industry. Uh, they've done it with filing trade cases on their own. Uh, everyone else, I mean, kitchen cabinets did recently, but... I mean, you want to start with the national security industries now. You want to start with the critical ones. I mean, the best place right now is the strategic materials, the the things we want to use to electrify for national defense, the rare earths, and make sure that we've got enough of that uh, to produce our, you know, our advanced batteries, our electric cars, our military, uh, and the chips, all these things that 
That's the easiest to get support on now is the national security-related critical industries. That's where we need to build our industrial strategy to reshore them and either finance the new mining, finance the new, uh, you know, getting the scrap, finance the re, uh, the processing of it, uh, and finance the 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 end consumers of it and protect them from predation. The end consumers being the battery manufacturers, that sort of thing, because you can't just give them money to, for battery manufacturing and then throw them open to the Chinese because mm-hmm. they're getting taken out. Um, I think I strayed from your question, but uh, well, uh, it's uh, hard to hard to show an industry that's protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones that are most protected are the ones that you can't go large shipping di- distances economically. It has nothing to do with our trade policy. Mm-hmm. So would that be certain fluid milk? <laughs> you know, it makes no sense to ship it overseas. Steel is yeah. actually hard to ship overseas, but with the subsidies in Asia, they managed yeah. to do it. But in a you know a free market utopia, mm-hmm. you can because it's. It's dollar to weight ratio. It makes it non-economic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the, the shipping uh, thing is interesting because it seems like putting aside all the policy failures, that one of the natural counterbalances that you would have against massive levels of globalization would be geography. It's like makes no sense to ship something all the way across the world and then ship it back to sell it again. And it just, I guess, highlights the gravity of the policy failures that the scales got balanced so heavily or got got, got weighted so heavily to one side that it makes sense to do that. Obviously, now we're in an era because of national security concerns um, related to supply chain crises during COVID. We're starting to rethink some of that stuff. What do you think some of the most obvious examples of places where the supply chain is so long that it just creates vulnerability are? I... Where do you start? There's so much. I mean, the shipping cost tariff has been extremely high through COVID. We've seen the shipping costs quintuple, mm-hmm. um, which is why I can't understand why the administration is focusing on 25% tariffs. We didn't put tariffs that quintupled, the, you know, were, were, were multiples of the previous value. Seafood, agricultural products, anything, the lower value per unit is where the supply chains would naturally be shorter, Mm -hmm. uh, where you've got a lot of water in the shipping, the low value, the high value stuff, whether it's chips, aluminum actually is pretty high value, uh, you know, dollars per weight. Mm -hmm. So I think the ratio is the higher tech, higher value, that's where shipping is a lower proportion of the product's cost. Mm -hmm. So in a in a you know in a free 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 market free trade utopia world that's what you would look at as the ratio of you know the shipping cost to the mm-hmm. value of the product, um, but that just goes to show you like when you send uh, uh, Alaskan salmon to China to get processed and packaged and come back here it's a huge supply chain mm-hmm. for a, not a lot of value I mean fish isn't cheap but my goodness. And what happened is you had unlimited government debt funding for a lot of industries there. And China sort of did its own modern monetary theory mm-hmm. uh, in practice where the Central Bank of China would print renminbi uh, to capitalize the state-owned banks. The state-owned banks would then lend uh, unprofitable loans to state-owned industries. Uh, they couldn't pay them back. So you had non-performing uh, loans and huge amounts, billions and trillions. And rather than require them to pay them back, they would just, the People's Bank of China would buy the non-performing loans from the state-owned banks, recapitalizing the state-owned banks, put the non-performing loan paper in the wastebasket, rinse and repeat. And that's <laughs> how they continually did it. And so the free money, was, the was free the land, they were able all to that, get away with this because they have such restrictive capital flows and you just can't get your money out if they don't want you to get your money out? That's a large part of it. Uh, that's a large part of it. And they just, uh, uh, the ability for them to expand the money supply was something we never conceived of before. So mm-hmm. yeah, their capital controls were a good part of it. Number one. Number two, the fact is that if you expand the money supply in a particular way to expand production. It's different than just giving helicopter money to everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're building production Mm -hmm. so that you get your money supply versus production uh, 
keep it in balance. Yeah. Whereas here we do money supply increases to benefit Wall Street and finance. Yeah. And yeah. then we don't increase production. And yeah. that's something, I mean, if you increase production here, that's anti-inflationary, mm-hmm. frankly. So we're seeing right now when we don't have production and we're relying on overseas, that we have price volatility and supply volatility that puts us in crises. And we're going from crisis to crisis. In industrial policy right now, if we were going to do something, we would want to have at least some productive base in these critical areas like PPE, medicines, something so we can have a way to ramp up so uh, so we're not excessive. We don't have to be, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, well, you know, totally self-sufficient, but just have enough to so that we can discipline the overseas providers. And if we want to be self-sufficient, fine, but we've got to have something. We can't have nothing here. Trump ran on... Uh- Fair trade deals. Uh, he was the only guy on that stage that was really talking about that issue. He won on that issue. Did he do anything about it? Yes. The the 201 tariffs and solar, the 201, which is safeguard to protect against dumping of solar modules from around the world. Now, the industries initiated that case, but then he had to do the presidential proclamation and make a judgment call. Mm-hmm. Close washers, then he did the the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs to, on 232, that's a national security basis uh, to protect a national security industry. Fighting uphill against Congress, the GOP in Congress were free traders and saying we can't do this, it's really bad. And the, some of the Dems, of course, who hated Trump. Uh, so the, there was a totally hostile Congress. And of course, the press, everyone was saying inflation is going to happen, inflation, you're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to uh, have hyperinflation. You're going to, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Of course, that didn't happen. And now we have inflation that's because of COVID and expanded, you know, uh, you know, uh, stimulus money uh, and uh, disruption in the, you know, in production side. Um, but it didn't happen. When you have tariffs, if you have tariffs, it's going to have inflation. It's going to happen in the in the first year. Mm-hmm. After that, it won't happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we didn't see that. Then he did the 301s against China, 301 tariffs which was, allows us to put tariffs on a whole other country, not just their steel or their solar, uh, the whole country, because they are, as a country, waging economic warfare, violating international rules against us, which is harming our industry. Mm-hmm. And he started at a low level with the fa- – with the, he declared it. Uh, uh, he made a presidential, I guess, proclamation is how they do it and started with list one. And that was designed under the law to to convince China to stop its bad behavior, which is IP theft. Mm -hmm. They didn't stop. They didn't admit it. They retaliated. So we said, okay, we're going further. So we put together a second list of tariffs. And they retaliated again. Okay, we go further. And we put list three and list 4A and 4B. Then they did the phase one. So he he did it against a hostile Congress. Nobody was with him. Lighthizer, uh, you know, pushed this, of course, and he's right. And... uh, and then we saw that the, the world didn't end. And I know a lot of our companies that had tariff products, they got a little bit of relief from China and they started expanding. And the people started thinking, the investors that were investing in China started rethinking, is this a good long-term investment to be in China? Because mm-hmm. this isn't working. I don't look like what the eight-year outlook looks like. So he, did, he didn't do everything I would have wanted, but in the political environment where we're really transitioning from misguided neoliberal free trade into more of a national industrial strategy. He was the change agent. Mm -hmm. That's um, good to hear. Um, And I think Bob Lighthizer was one of the greatest uh, officials in the Trump administration in terms of just being heads down, laser focused on his issue and moving the ball forward. Uh, Moving forward, um, you know, it felt like at the very beginning of the Biden administration, we actually... um, did our very first episode of this podcast uh, right after the Biden administration was inaugurated. And it seemed like, oh, maybe this administration is going to be somewhat good on 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 trade and and China, you know, the, that 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 Biden's going to do, you know, his whole Scranton Joe thing. And I mean, what's what's your assessment of how the Biden administration has uh, dealt with the trade issue as, as time has gone on? Yeah. So we were hopeful that there would be some you know, Build Back Better is kind of a democratic version of uh, America First mm-hmm. in an economic sense, uh, at least on paper. And uh, there's this whole tension. Except for all the crazy stuff they put in it. <laughs> yeah, well, I un- understand. Uh, I mean, Elizabeth Warren had her economic patriotism plan, which Marco Rubio said, you stole from, my, from me, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, so 
we were hopeful that you know that there would be some real significant effort on building our industry, building our jobs uh, here. I think last week uh, uh, really revealed uh, because Biden uh, did a declaration invoking a national emergency, mm-hmm. saying that there's a national emergency uh, on the climate. So we have to get uh, subsidized uh, forced labor, uh, dirty energy, solar panels made by Chinese companies from Southeast Asia mm-hmm. because there is a case going on to prevent those uh, forced labor subsidized solar panels from coming in to protect U.S. industry. And he put a stop to it. And the Greenies were always saying, oh, we're going to have 10 million clean energy jobs. And that's actually on Biden's campaign website. Mm -hmm. It's still there. 10 million clean energy jobs. We're going to have clean energy of the future and 10 million new jobs. There's always that tension that, oh, we want to have all these solar panels and we want to have the jobs. But when the environmentalists, when it comes down to it, when they talk about jobs, they say, no, we don't care about the jobs. We just want the solar panels. And that's what he did last week. In a situation where American solar manufacturers are poised because of the environment with their investments, big investments, to be self-sufficient, the U.S. self-sufficient in solar module production in three years. Mm -hmm. They're really ramping up fast. Now, as organizationally, we're not pro or anti any energy source. Uh, All of the above, let's just have the jobs here. Mm -hmm. So I'm not here on a you know, a pro solar mission, except for the job side. If we're going to make it, let's mm-hmm. make it here. Mm-hmm. So they have clearly thrown in a little bit of Buy America stuff, a little bit of framework, but they have revealed themselves as Clinton, Bush, Obama globalists yeah. that are not serious about rebuilding this country. You know, I, so I, it's build back Beijing <laughs> is what it is. It really is. I was hesitant to say that two months ago. I'm not. It is build back Beijing now. It's disappointing. And I mean, it it puts even more of an onus on, I think, the right to really champion this approach to economics. And I think this is where it'll naturally shake out anyway over time. It's just that the goal should be to put the gas on the pedal so that we don't have a sustained period of 10 years where neither party really cares about, you know, American manufacturing. I think that that's that's really poised to change. One of the um, pieces of this framework that I've been thinking through lately. And we recently spent the last five to six months thinking a lot about foreign policy just because of the stuff going on in the world. And um, as was typified by this uh, $40 billion uh, for Ukraine aid package, you know, for the first time, you got 57 Republicans to come together and say no. And uh, everyone brought their own reasons. Some were ideological realists, some had fiscal concerns, some had prioritization concerns. What in your mind on the trade issue is the basket of different approaches other than just, you know, a you know, kind of a, a, a real serious understanding of the economics of the issue. What's the what's the basket of approaches that you can bring to the table in order to attract different disparate coalitions in American life to to have your approach on trade? So obviously the Republican Party has been moving more toward a Hamiltonian sense with, you know, the new with with uh, Trump, the Trump revolution. And there will be more. The Finance Committee, uh, Senator Crapo, is old old style. He has not been helpful. And of course, Pat Toomey has not. Uh, Kevin Brady has not. They're, they're unreformed globalists on the conservative side. But the big mover is national security, that we have to have sufficient industrial strength for national security. Mm-hmm. The next stage is economic security. Mm-hmm. The jobs debate, frankly, has been going on for years, and it was at a stalemate in a way. The globalists won the jobs debate, or you know, they didn't. It's just because the math is muddy, or what? It's because I don't, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. The jobs thing. Everybody could have a credible jobs argument. It never was a clear winner. National security was, mm-hmm. and Trump used national security to move. The, the 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 GOP free traders cared more about national security than they did about free trade, mm-hmm. and uh, that's. That's good. I thought that forced labor and human rights would move the Dems. And there are the, the fair trade Dems 
that are and and some with you know some Hamiltonian esque parts mm-hmm. of it, but they're more fair fair traders that uh, have always been around and have mm-hmm. been helpful pre Trump. But I thought forced labor and human rights is a is a you know everybody cares about it, but Dems th- I thought they would more, but we now see that forced labor in China is not the big. Uh, 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 motivator that it was with this Biden solar decision. I know Chairman Blumenauer, the Trade Subcommittee in Ways and Means, said to me that uh, we, you know, we need to save the climate, but not on the backs of forced labor. Mm-hmm. Well, no comment on the climate from me, but uh, that gives you an idea of what the the Dems were saying. But so, but the genocide forced labor is a big thing. The China, the China geopolitical rivalry, is what's going to change things, mm-hmm. frankly. Um, you can have subsidization issues. Uh, that does, is not clear um, winner across all constituencies. But the combination of national security, domestic industrial growth, uh, 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 forced labor, humanitarian concerns, pollution concerns, frankly. Mm-hmm. The more you offshore, the more you hurt the climate, mm-hmm. the more you pollute. Uh, that but the NIMBYism usually ones. wins out, right? It's that people don't see it, and so they think it's not well, happening. Well, that's an opportunity the Republicans have when they take power, because um, it looks like, of course, that they are, uh, is to really, really uh, clear clear that away uh, uh, for national economic security uh, reasons to get the regulatory, you know, NIMBYism uh, out of the way more. Mm-hmm. So I hope that can happen, but. I don't think we're going back because, you know, you have the Russia-Ukraine war, you have China and the Taiwan threat, and they're building, I mean, that's not going away. The geopolitical rivalry, we're moving more and more Cold War-ish, mm-hmm. and it's going to be hard to to swim against that current. And so mm-hmm. we've got to figure out industrial strategy to to uh, to maintain our, our, our status in the world and our way of life. Who would you say... Uh- are a couple of the the MVPs on on either side, on the Democratic side, on the Republican side, that have been really stellar on this issue in the last few years? Yeah, Hawley and Rubio are clearly stellar in the Senate side, um, and uh, uh, on the GOP. Uh, and we'll, we're seeing more and more on the on the House side too. I mean. My GR team knows all the names of the people. Mm. I'm not as 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 uh, uh, clear, but Jimenez is a big uh, uh, a big leader. He's a leader on uh, China in the House. Uh, Jim Banks uh, is. Uh, I don't want to leave anyone out. Scott Perry is. I mean, people are in different different iterations of their switch and. Mm-hmm. Some are because they're realizing it. Some are just because the country's moving that way. And mm-hmm. frankly, the GOP voters are the strongest on uh, China and rebuilding here and making it here mm-hmm. more than the Dems. But the Dems are a majority, uh, too. On the Dems side, it's always been, you know, sort of, I mean, I he- hesitate to say names because some of the listeners will say, oh, yuck. <laughs> uh, so I'm not, you know, endorsing or not uh, other aspects of their uh yeah of 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 what they work on but yeah. uh, brown has always been historically opposing the trade deals and he's pro industrial mm-hmm. strategy uh warren has been her economic patriotism plan had some things that conservatives can like mm-hmm. uh like so much that rubio said you stole all that from me <laughs> right um yeah. and it's good to find it's good to give democrats a path to patriotism mm-hmm. uh and because there's too much globalism uh mm-hmm. there and uh, uh, Peter DeFazio uh, in the House has always been fantastic. He should have been the chairman of Ways and Means and not uh, Transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blumenauer has come along. Blumenauer is a reforming globalist. He's in. He's he's uh, used to be globalist. Now he's not. Tim Ryan has always been good. And I know you may not want to hear that because he's <laughs> a rival with J.D. Vance, who's also great. Yeah. In a way, with Ohio, between Vance and Ryan, we're going to get someone pretty good out of it mm-hmm. um but i know lighthizer who i'm a huge fan of is endorsed vance uh, but 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 ryan just wrote a letter to biden saying don't cut the 301 tariffs mm-hmm. um uh you know the old fair trade group in the house uh that fought the deals that's that's rosa deloro marcy captor 
Uh, they were the only ones that fought it. You remember in 2011, when the South Korea trade agreement was voted on, only 11 Republicans voted against it. And so we've gone a long way, in a good way. And now they're the leader with the Trump team. And the new, the new uh, class that's going to come in next year is going to be better. Mm -hmm. But national security in China is what's really going to drive this. And you just really can't open up more free trade to China. It's just going to mm -hmm. look stupid. Are you excited? Does it feel like there's more activity in a good direction on this issue than there was in 2006 when oh, you started? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, back in 2009... You know, to talk about balanced trade and rebuilding our country, you were the shrill voice in the cheap seats. Right? <laughs> and now, um, you know, CPA, you know, we're the we're the most you know popular girl or guy at the dance in a way. <laughs> you know, in, in a lot a lot of quarters because we've been you know we're a leader on this, and the other the other trade associations in this country are are. Conflicted out by globalists. You look mm -hmm. at the Solar Energy Industries Association, which got Steve Rochetti and Ron Klain and Biden to do this totally pro-China deal on solar. They have, it's, it's, they have, uh, they're funded by Chinese CCP-supported solar companies, mm -hmm. Longi, Jinko, uh, Trina, who have been implicated in forced labor. They're funding the U.S. Manufacturing Association and their PR effort in public affairs and GR effort to convince Biden. Money well spent. We heard it was 10 million bucks. Um, but they are now understood to be this Chinese Solar Association. Yeah. Uh, National Association of Manufacturers is conflicted out by multinationals that don't care about this country. Uh, you have the Association for Affordable Medicine. I mean, we've 80, 90% of our active pharmaceutical ingredients are made in China or India. They associate. Seems like a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And they're not inspected. Yeah. And they're not uh, therapeutically bioequivalent. It's bad. I mean, the next shoe to drop is we thought formula was bad. The medicines thing is coming. I thought it should have come during yeah. COVID. And we used to make it in Puerto Rico, and now Puerto Rico is a fiscal basket case, and we have a national security problem when it comes to medicine. Well, it was a funky tax deal that I can't explain, which put it into Puerto Rico, and then yeah. it left Puerto Rico. New Jersey's big on it. Yeah. Um, but it's a huge, great industry for jobs program. Essential mm -hmm. medicines are fantastic. It's a great supply chain. And plus, mm -hmm. just, you know, we're patient. We want things put in our bodies that are safe and therapeutically <laughs> effective, yeah. right? And we haven't had inspections in China for three years. Yeah. I mean, holy Moses. Well, good thing. The one thing we do know that all their COVID tests totally worked, right? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So did their vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, oops. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the exception, not the rule, right? <laughs> uh, we're going to see soon the, uh, we're going to see the patients dying. From, I mean, they are dying now. It's just not hitting. And I, I, I'm not being flip about this. Mm -hmm. This is really bad. Mm -hmm. Patients are dying with cancer drugs, with this or that. They're not getting the... And at some point, we're going to see this blow open like formula. And uh, Califf, who's the FDA commissioner, is going to wonder what hit him. He should be on this right now because this is a train wreck coming his way. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't learn our lesson with COVID. We just didn't. And uh, so... Those are the things that are going to drive this. Michael, where can people keep an eye on everything that you are working on, uh, Coalition for Prosperous America is working on, and, and get connected with you guys? Well, get connected. ProsperousAmerica.org is our website. But do not let your representatives, congressmen, and candidates, senators, off the hook on this. When they, when they go bad, when they go for the global, because the globalists are calling them all the time. You got... Uh, the BMW folks in South Carolina, the uh, the Mercedes in Alabama, they're calling their senators, they're calling Tuberville, they're calling Lindsey Graham all the time saying, drop these tariffs. That's You got to keep the pressure on these candidates. And when they are acting like Pat Toomey and just world without borders and work for Wall Street, you got to take them out. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you, we, we can't go back to where we were. So that's come to visit our website, learn, great, wonderful. But we've got to get the party, we've got to get the GOP more and more toward the Hamiltonian way of winning the global competition for good jobs and industries. 
Well, thank you for everything that you do on that issue. Uh, y'all are our favorite group on on trade by far, and we've learned so much from from uh, paying attention to all the great work that you guys are doing. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Michael. My pleasure. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that episode and you can enjoy the rest of our episode backlog on AmericanMoment.org. We have over 60 episodes of content. I think it's like over 100 hours at this point. Um, so plenty of uh, of stuff for you to listen to if you're on the road at all this summer, getting some some sunshine on the beach. Uh, we try to make these episodes evergreen so that you can always go back and listen to them if you're looking to brush up on one issue. Um, someone wrote a very nice review recently about how the listenability of this podcast is unbeatable, how grocery lists never slip into their mind if they uh, are listening to it. Um, what a great compliment. So thank you for that. Always make sure to leave nice reviews for us. It tickles us pink um, on Apple Podcasts. Um, Five stars only, please. It's extremely helpful for the rankings. Uh, we're climbing up. I think we crossed like 125 reviews recently. That's great. Let's get, I don't know, 200 by the end of this year, whatever. Um, and make sure to subscribe on YouTube if you'd like to get the video version of this podcast. We have a bunch of cameras around here uh, costing more than I care to think about without getting a nosebleed. Um, make sure to to check it out on YouTube as well to see um, you know my pretty face and the pretty face of all of our guests. Um, as always, you can go to AmericanMoment.org to find everything else we have cooking, uh, but we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.